Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland. And we have a very special episode for you today, uh, replete with skullduggery, treachery, and unending, enduring mystery of what on earth went on actually in France uh, during the occupation in the Second World War. So, James, who have we got today? Well, we've got Patrick Marnham. And I've got to say, I'm thrilled to see you, Patrick. Uh, and I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast because um, I read your biography of Jean Moulin some years ago and enjoyed it very much and found it absolutely fascinating and I positively devoured War in the Shadows um I was sent it by your publishers back months and months and months ago when it was still just a um a a pdf version before it had been published or anything um and I just found it utterly utterly fascinating Uh, and it's amazing really how many myths have endured about the SOE in France and what really happened, particularly, I suppose, with the Prosper Circuit, which is this very famous circuit network of agents that was uh, that came undone around the same time that Jean Moulin was captured in Lyon in the end of June 1943, just before the um, Allies invaded Sicily. And and the finger has been pointed at various people over the years, but but particularly René Hardy is the guy who's supposed to be the kind of arch culprit for Jean Moulin. But then you get this very, very intriguing letter from someone who clearly was a spook at some point, leading you down a different path. And that's taken you to completely dismantle MRD Foote, who is the official historian of SOE, uh, and was obviously kind of in the pay of the secret intelligence circuit, which is now known as MI6. Um, And there's all sorts of of stuff going on, which I just... I mean, I was just gobsmacked reading this book, weren't you, Al? Um, Yes, it's... it's, Yes. See, there I am, speechless. Um, so, Patrick, was it a shock to you? to Because essentially you write one book and then you have to write another book sort of dismantling your previous book. How does that feel as an author? Well, um, there were 20 years between the two books, so I had time to pluck up my courage. It's really a sort of voyage of discovery because I started off, obviously, convinced by my first theories. And then as I went back through my own friendship with some of the people involved... I discovered that there were completely different ideas and, and had been in France for many years. As if for many years, the French uh, resistors had concluded, or many of them had concluded, that they had been the victims of a deception operation. And that this was the reason, in fact, why the official historian, M.R.D. Foote, was commissioned to write his book to quell, to quench these rumours and um, establish an official truth. Which we should say is called SOE in France, and it's part of the official histories published by Her Majesty's Stationery Office. They have little sort of um, slightly sort of buff-coloured paper dust jackets with green writing. They're incredibly, for the most part, they're incredibly boring. Um, But for the most part, they are kind of 
pretty much what happened and, and considered the last word on this stuff, but not SOE in France. And, and Foote, of course, is the chap who was entrusted with revealing the ultras, writing the ultra secret up. So he's he's absolutely in the bosom of, of the in, in, intelligence world, isn't he, uh, Patrick? Yes, he was... Um... He was an intelligence officer himself for much of the of the war, Second World War. He then switched to special forces, but he was select. He was actually as an historian. He was a professional historian, of course. He was a specialist in nineteenth-century political history. So it's clear that he wasn't chosen for that reason. He was chosen because he was a trusted pen, if you like. Well, the right chap, because it's a world of chaps, isn't it? So he's the right chap for the... It, he, it is a world of chaps. And in fact, what really alarmed the government back in the 50s and the early 60s was that two people who weren't chaps, well, in fact, three people who weren't chaps, three women, started repeating and investigating the French suspicions because initially because they were so alarmed by what had happened to one of the female SOE agents no Anayat Khan, uh, and they wanted to find out the truth about why she had been arrested so quickly after her arrival. Because she's, she's picked up all, literally almost immediately, isn't she? she? Was, well, she was actually arrested four months after, after her arrival, but she had, been, she had been watched since her arrival. She had been watched since the evening of her arrival. But it's also fair to say that she, I mean, you know, if you want to send a, a secret agent, a, a British secret agent to France, you know, having someone of Indian descent, very posh, who's kind of not really up to it, is an odd decision to make in, its, in the first place, isn't it? It was a very strange decision. She, her training officer said she shouldn't go. And the coding officer at SOE, Leo Marx, uh, was appalled. Um, that she was being sent, not just because she was so conspicuously attractive, but because she had been taught by her father that the worst thing she could ever do was tell a lie. This didn't seem to be very good. <laughs> just, yeah, I mean, it's just amazing. So how on earth, how on earth did she get sent? And why was she sent? Was she sent so she would deliberately get picked up? I think I think the... I mean, is the skullduggery that, that hard? No, because I think this is, this is really running on two levels. And at the SOE officer who sent her, Colonel Buckmaster, the head of F section, was very, very short of radio operators. And he said that that was the reason she was sent, even before her training was finished. So I think he was sufficiently incompetent to have actually meant that. And he, he wrote a note in, in the training officer's report disrecommending her, saying nonsense makes me cross. I don't think Buckmaster was... Buckmaster was actually part of one of those who were deceived in this operation. What he didn't know was that the air movements officer in France, a Frenchman called Dericourt, was also working for the Gestapo. And that was the man who welcomed her on arrival. So am I right in saying that one of the sort of defining characteristics of SOE perhaps is, is a sense of amateurism, is that there's a, there's a kind of um, have-a-go spirit? Because SIS come up again and again and again, obviously, are the, are the other player, British player in, in your book, that SIS are the sort of hard-boiled professionals, although there is an amateur and professional culture in SIS, which Trevor Roper talked about. But the SOE are far more the sort of amateur, sort of start-up, really, to use a modern parlance. Yes, I mean, SOE was eventually a very, very large organisation. My book is simply 
is really just simply about what happened in France and particularly about F section, as it was called. But th that was the one which I think where the incompetence is manifest, as it was indeed with the Dutch section. Um, on both occasions, they were penetrated by the Gestapo very skillfully, or by the Abwehr in the Dutch case, and, and manipulated. What I got onto was that, at least in the case of France, officers in SIS knew this was happening. They knew that the air movement officer was working for the Gestapo, which F section did not know. Well, why wouldn't they? Why would they not share such a crucial piece of information? I suppose is a, and it might be your gut reaction. One's gut reaction. Well, because to that. they wanted they they the officer running SIS effectively executing the executive head of SIS in this matter, Colonel Claude Dancy, was interested in in misusing SOE as part of a deception, a, a campaign of deception. And he, he, in fact, is the man who sent uh, Dericourt on arrival, having been discovered to be a Gestapo agent, into SOE and then into France. And SIS infiltrated this man into SOE and then arranged to block all the attempts made by our security agency, MI5, to stop this happening. So MI5, the... the the, the partner security agency in England was also deceived by SIS. I mean, what I can't remember is, is it was, was Dericourt um, brought into the Gestapo first or SIS first? As far as I can make out, and I, there's pretty good evidence for this. In fact, there is good evidence for it. He was first of all recruited by, by the SS, SD in Paris, the Gestapo as we call them. He was then sent to England with a, and with a false story. He was slipped onto an, um, a British escape line and arrived in Scotland and then in London with a complete cock and bull story about being, having been vetted in Cairo um, as a potential BOAC pilot. He was then sent for, for clearance uh, where he was picked up by SIS, but not by, and suspected by MI5. The SOE did not realize any of this. They simply accepted him as manna from heaven because he was a very skillful pilot and exactly the man they needed in France to assist them to get their own agents into the country. So he's a thoroughly bad egg, really, isn't he? A totally bad egg, <laughs> yes. Yeah, <laughs> and, 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 and Dancy is a, is a complete shit, isn't Well, it? yes, I was going to say, we bypassed Dancy a little there, because I want... Oh, Trevor Roper describes as an utter shit, corrupt, incompetent, with a, but with a certain low cunning. Now, that sounds to me like actually the kind of person you'd want in charge of, um, of a thing like SIS, or, or, you know, that you'd want in charge of, of, of this kind of skullduggery. But, 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 but that it results in SOE essentially being... Sending out someone who's a double agent... A sort of high price for for um, Dancy's sort of corruption and incompetence. He has such an interesting genesis because, after all, he's a he's a private contractor between the wars, doing this stuff um, uh, on the open market, isn't he? Yes, he was. Well, he was a, he was an SIS officer, but he was allowed. He was encouraged to run a parallel um, spy service called the Z organization in Europe uh, before the war. He was the head of that organization. He recruited his own agents. And the reason they let him do it was because they didn't have to pay for it. They were very short of funds between the wars. 
and Dancy organising so that large British concerns abroad, such as oil companies, would pay for the Z organization's agents in return, of course, for getting the, um, very useful information from them. So Dancy was well used to operating independently. And what, I've, what I have established in my book is that he continued to do this throughout the war. In France, he ran two operations. One was the one for which he was accountable, the SIS operation, which sent many, many hundreds of agents into France, and which included MI9, the escape line. And the other was a completely separate organization, which he ran through Switzerland, through an ex-Z man called Victor Farrell, and which he would let nobody into or know about what was going on. There's, uh, there are documents which I've created in the book showing that he, ex he deliberately excluded any information about what he was doing through Switzerland from anyone in the senior position or junior position in MI5 or SOE. But, but Patrick, I mean, he, I mean, Darcy doesn't strike me as being incompetent. He just, just strikes me as just being, you know, a man with no moral compass whatsoever and a complete shit. But He wasn't at all incompetent. No, no, he was regarded as a very fine spymaster. It's not a question of incompetence on Dancy's part. He was a very good um, manoeuvrer in the Whitehall politics. I mean, the other thing I, I would say is, 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 you know, I, mean, I remember looking into Operation Mincemeat and what's completely clear about Mincemeat and the Double Cross Committee is, is that they've, they're living in this little bubble and they start to kind of sort of believe their own kind of self-importance and they, they get completely carried away with what they're doing. And, and, and Mincemeat is just completely over the top uh, and actually doesn't, you know, in the big scheme of things doesn't really achieve anything either because it doesn't dissuade Hitler from what he'd already thought and it doesn't dissuade Mussolini and Kesselring and everything else what they already thought that, that the invasion's going to be in Sicily. So it does it, all it does is confirm what people are already thinking in the case of Hitler and, and does nothing to anybody else. Uh, you know, this whole kind of giant deception plan of 1943... I mean, it just seems such an extremely over-the-top kind of exercise, going around sort of assassinating the kind of, you know, get, uh, effectively assassinating the, the the leader of the resistance in France, in Jean Moulin, in in un, you know, in undermining this whole network of agents, many of whom are British, just so that you can have some cock and bull deception plan, which then gets discarded anyway because they have no intention of doing it in the first place, or very little intention of doing it in the first place. Well, I don't entirely agree with you about Mincemeat. Uh, Mincemeat did, did result in the transfer of at least one Panzer division to Greece, um, and, and, and I think that was followed by other divisions as well. Um, so it was, to some extent, um, a success. And also, of course, it didn't kill anyone. The person involved was already dead, which was an advantage. But um, the other thing is that there was, there was strategic, very important strategic... This is one of the things the anonymous letter asked me to look into. There were very important strategic considerations in London in the early part of 1943, all of which were about what was happening on the Eastern Front, where, following the defeat in Stalingrad, the German armies had regrouped, successfully counterattacked, and and where they they threatened to be to make a, a second major advance against Soviet forces. The British ambassador in Moscow was warning London that Stalin was still considering, and this was correct, by the way, um, the possibility of a separate peace if the worst came to the worst. 
of a separate piece, um, a rebirth of the Nazi-Soviet pact, if you like. This was this remained one of Stalin's options, although he never got, he never had to, to reactivate it, of course. So London was desperate to strengthen the Soviet armies in, in the East and to weaken the German armies. And as far as the Prosper organization went, the portrayal of Prosper, this was done by trying to persuade German intelligence that there would be landings in France in the second part of 1943. And that is the part of the the letter where I think I have successfully established that that is exactly what happened because I discovered these documents at the end of my research in the National Archives that showed a direct link for the first time between Derricourt, the Gestapo double agent, and Colonel Dancy, who was not supposed to have anything to do with him whatsoever. We've got to take a break now. Um, We'll be back with Patrick Marnham in a minute. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. James and I are talking to Patrick Marnham about war in the shadows, SOE, SIS, and the rest. It seems very over the top um, and extreme to kind of bump off Jean Moulin, disband the whole kind of you know resistance movement that's taking place in France, um, and unravel an entire agent network of the scale of Prosper. You know, I know hard choices have to be made, but you have to remember by the time this is all happening, you know, the Battle of the Atlantic has been won. uh, North Africa has been won. um, 
uh, um, Stalingrad has happened. There's been no reach of the um, Caucasus oil fields. Um, you know, Stalin might be threatening that, but he cannot seriously think that by the middle of 1943 that there's going to be a reversal of fortunes in the, in the Eastern Front. You know, and these are intelligence officers, so they should be able to kind of think pragmatically uh, and realistically. That, that's that's what I find so so weird. And I think I, what I find is kind of sort of slightly more convincing is the concern that from from back in London that the French resistance is becoming a little bit too organised too quickly, and, and what you don't want at the end of a war is lots of sort of commies running around France with with Sten guns and and Bren guns and what have you, kind of saying vive la revolution yes well that that is of course the second part of um of the of my plot if you like is what happened to jean moulin um and that that, that is where dancy's swiss um parallel organization comes into play um it has never really been appreciated to the correct extent in france that the only person who would betray jean moulin who always admitted it, was in fact an SIS agent, um, an agent working for an agent working for Dancy. And there were, there's no question that Jean Moulin now, of course, is a great national figure in France and, and famous with us as well, if we take an interest in the subject. But in 1943, he was not a particularly um, significant figure outside the Gaullist organization. And the concern from London's point of view was he had united the resistance behind De Gaulle and they considered this to be, from a military point of view, extremely dangerous because a united leadership, um, if it were broken, would lead to the compromising of the whole military resistance. And he had done this um, following De Gaulle's instructions and totally against Allied policy. So from the Allied point of view, he was a menace. And in fact, after he was arrested, they rearranged the structure of the Gaulist resistance and, and regionalized it. So it was no longer possible for one man to be arrested in that way and, and to threaten the safety of the whole network. Because it's easier to manage the resistance if it's atomized, essentially, isn't it? And you've got them all in pockets, in packets, and you're running them each separately. So if they turn into a coherent movement, you've got... You've also got the problem of de Gaulle saying, I am the king over the water waiting to return. And if it looks like he does actually have a constituency to return to, he's afforded political power and he, he might slide out of your control as a, as a political entity is the, is, the, is the problem, isn't it? Because after all, the, the, they're keeping all the other governments down as well, aren't they? They're keeping the Polish government firmly in its place and all, all the governments in exile are being managed in this way. And de Gaulle's attitude is very much... I mean, you know, I've, it, it's always amazed me that his name is basically from France. Um, that, that he, you know, he, he, his, his name is so totemic of France in itself that he, he's sort of, he's an, clearly an irresistible symbol. And you don't, the last thing you want if you're the Allied governments is an irresistible symbol, isn't it? Yes, I mean, he was regarded with deep suspicion in London and in Washington in 1943. There was the, his, his, his security service in London had been more or less convicted of carrying out very brutal interrogations and possibly killings at their headquarters in Duke Street. Um, he himself was regarded as, uh, was described as and regarded as crypto-fascist by many leading French exiles. 
And um, Churchill regarded him as a, made a speech in the House of Commons saying that he was, the House of Commons must not regard de Gaulle as the solution necessarily. Time would tell. And if we, if we go for the papers for 1943, you can see just to what extent de Gaulle was actually reviled by many of those uh, in positions in the chiefs of staff and so on, in authority in both Washington and London. So anything that weakened de Gaulle's grip on the resistance for that particular constituency was welcome. There were, of course, others like Eden who were determined to support him, but, it, but there was a very, very strong lobby against him in June 1943. The other thing that I found just fascinating is, is just... You know how France dealt with this after war. I mean, my understanding of it is is that the De Gaulle just said, you know, for the most part, let's let's not talk about it too much. You know, people who've sort of done some wrong things, otherwise, we'll never move on. You know, the sorrow and the pity that that iconic documentary series about the resistance, about 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 the occupation and resistance and collaboration that comes out, and I think nineteen sixty eight or nineteen sixty nine is banned until you know, for certainly for sort of fifteen years or something like that. You know, because it's just seen as too incendiary. And yet, you know, other people have been allowed to sort of rise up the kind of legend list, you know, in the absence of Jean Moulin himself, who's obviously been killed in July 1943. um, You've got the Aubrac's. and, and it is amazing. I mean, I thought your your kind of sort of dismantling of the Obracks and the, just the kind of sort of web of of deceit and lies in which they kind of... I mean, it's just absolute nonsense from start to finish. It was, was just amazing because they are kind of only one tier down from, from Jean Moulin, aren't they, in the kind of pantheon of, of resistance heroes? And yet they cut... You know, they, they, they got caught out. Yes, the Obracks are a very interesting, very interesting couple. Um, they were both dedicated communists, although they didn't mention that very often. And in fact, Lucy Obrecht brushed it aside after the war and said it had no importance, which is absolute, that was absolute nonsense. Um, she was a serial fantasist and made up a whole lot of extraordinary stories, um, which, were, which were fiction. This was all revealed at a symposium of French historians, a confrontation with the Obrechts in Paris in, in the year 2000 when they were they had been accused of betraying Jean Moulin. Uh, they had won a libel action in, in denying that. And uh, the historians decided that they still had an awful lot of questions which they seemed to be incapable of answering. And they had been the people who led the, the movement against René Hardy, who was the person who most people still think betrayed Jean Moulin. In fact, they, they and the Communist Party had made sure that after the war, he was the one who would carry the can. And one can see from reading this symposium that in fact, they had a great deal to hide about, what, about Raymond Aubrecht's um, activities just before Jean Moulin was arrested. And one can also see that he told several lies about, the, about, about his own relationship with the Gestapo in Lille. So the famous Obrak story is they arrive at a site to be collected and taken back to the UK and she's bust him out of a Gestapo van with a machine gun. She's eight months pregnant. I mean, I you know, 
I'll 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 buy that. That sounds fabulous. That sounds like the the glamour of the resistance that is surely irresistible as a story. But is he, is that even true? Well, I mean, the thing with the Obrax is you you very effectively you start to push into their stories, and they all you know Nacht and Nabel is after all the the sort of what the the Nazi watchword for all this. But there's an awful lot of night and fog around what the these resistors or apparent resistors are up to, isn't there? It's very hard, very hard to pin down who the Obrax really are. Well, we, we know pretty much now who Raymond Obrax was because he worked discreetly for the, for, the, for the communists after the war as well. They were both hardline communists um, disguised as left-wing resistors. But the story of Raymond Obrax's liberation by Lucy Obrax, the gun-toting, eight-month-old, eight-month pregnant wife. It's the most extraordinary story, and it, it was used It was used immediately in London when they got out, uh, thanks to the RAF. Um, There's a wonderful propaganda story, which became the basis for the, the their, their so-called historical account of what had happened. But many people have found it um, unconvincing, to put, to put it mildly. And the historians of the Eposium cross-questioned her very closely about the number of visits she had paid to the Gestapo headquarters to set up this operation and about very, very large sums of money, some of which she agreed she had paid to the SS and some of which she denied having paid to them. So the details are in the book, of course, but but um, she, is not a, she was a very, very unreliable historical witness and she was chided for that by the historians at the symposium. But you don't think that Raymond O'Brack was directly involved with the arrest of, of Jean Moulin, do you? I don't think he was the person who became responsible for... No, I don't think he said... I don't think he was, you know, that he was saying, OK, Barbie, I'll take you to Jean Moulin at all. But I think he was very well aware, because he'd been told, that something nasty might well happen and that this was why they delayed so long in getting to the house. I think they were both very surprised when they got there to find that nothing had happened because the Gestapo hadn't arrived. Um, and that's why, they allowed them, that's why they allowed themselves to be shown into the waiting room. So why, so why, yeah, so why did Mulan go in the first place? Why didn't he just cancel it? We don't know the answer to this. We, don't, we simply don't know. But Mulan, he was exhausted. He, hadn't, he didn't have the help he needed. And he did urgently need to make an appointment, which this meeting was supposed to agree on. And it, it could be that he just felt he didn't really have an option left. Um, he had to take the chance. But what he, what we don't know is why when they knocked on the door over half an hour late for the meeting, with everyone still apparently there, did they allow themselves to be shown into the doctor's waiting room, which was full of patients, which was clearly not a resistance meeting. And why did they then stand there, waiting quietly until the Gestapo arrived five minutes later? These are the sort of questions that have never been answered, which to me suggests that, that Mr. Obrecht knew that something horrible could well be about to happen. Yeah. I mean, is his, is his, is his reputation now completely tarnished in France? Not at all. Not at all. No, because people, people read what they want to believe, don't they? Whether it be Omaha Beach or whatever. Yes, it became part of the post-war French solution to the terrible trauma that the country had suffered. 
that, you know, resistors of the prominence of Obrecht became unquestioned heroes. And in the case of the left wing and the communists, they became almost the only resistance by their own account, which was a dominant account for many years in French history. What appetite is there in France for um, uh, re- revisiting this and discovering uh, a, a, a different tale? Much more than they used to be, much more than they used to be. Nowadays, French historians are prepared to working from documents to write exactly what they find. But um, until, well, for about, well, 60 years, I would say 50, 60 years, it was just um, a subject in which nobody wanted to talk. There was so much guilt about what had happened. There was so much falsity in, in the claims of those supposed resistors, which people didn't want to question because they themselves may have felt they didn't have a very glorious story to tell. And the whole thing became frozen. But that is no longer the case, no. And it was still frozen when the Barbie trial comes up in 87, really. Uh, in the 80s, rather. It's much, the Barbie trial is much more like a show trial than perhaps anyone would, would, have, been, would have cared to admit. The Barbie trial was a show trial. Um, it was a very shocking event, and sat from the point of view of a barrister, because it wasn't an attempt to, to discover the truth and, and, um, and administer justice. The man accused was well known to be guilty and they made a huge spectacle out of it because they wanted to establish openly and publicly for the first time what had happened to the French Jews during the occupation. And Barbie became the means of doing this. And it was, in fact, declared to be a history lesson for the schoolchildren of France. That's what the purpose of the trial was. Well, that's a very good history lesson, but it's not a very good legal trial. And at that time, as you say, the the paralysis affecting French history was still in place. And the Barbie trial was part of the process of breaking it and allowing people to to start examining what had really happened. So it was a, a in a way a sort of bump that French history had to get over or French politics really rather than history had to get over to allow a roadblock on getting to the truth. You've got to deal with one thing at a time in French politics and history, essentially. You can't, you can't do it all in one go. No, because there had been total silence about the fate, not total silence, but there had been total silence about the responsibility yeah. for the fate of the Jews in France. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Gabbabi trial certainly, certainly exploded that. Yeah. I mean, I, I was struck by Michel Thomas in the, in the Barbie trial in your book, that, that this extraordinary character who claimed to have been everywhere... And had created a legend. I mean, in a way, he's sort of he's sort of emblematic of the people building stories around themselves of their participation in the war. That actually, even at the Barbie trial, they went, "Well, hang on a minute, that that isn't true," and they and they they push his stories away, don't they? They say, "Well, you're not a reliable witness. You can't have been there. You can't have done this. You can't have done that." Even in a show trial, they were prepared to do that with someone who's effectively a star witness, isn't he? Yes, well, they had to do that because his performance was so unconvincing. It was embarrassing. <laughs> it was a very embarrassing performance. Michel Thomas is one of the people, there have been dozens of them, actually, who have fantasized that they, that they were either victims of, of, the genocide, of, the, of the attempted genocide or witnesses to it. And um, the French prosecutors failed to pick this up before he came into the witness box. And he was destroyed by... Barbie's counsel, 
um, because of because of <laughs> because of um, his unconvincing story, and to the point that the deputy prosecutor who was on duty that day started laughing, and that that evening gave a press conference saying we're no longer relying on his evidence. I mean, I've got to say, in all of this, though, uh, um, you know, from the SOE to sending, you know, Noyenyet Khan to all the rest of it. I mean, what you're the impression you get is that there's an awful lot of incompetence going on an awful lot of sort of amateurs playing at this. I mean, you know, from the point of view of, you know, whether it be kind of sort of, I don't know, I mean, you know, even when you look, I mean, I remember reading this this account by an SOE agent of his time behind the enemy lines in northern Italy in 1944. And, and I mean, I was laughing out loud as I was reading this in the National Archives. I mean, it was, it was the whole thing was just such a, such a so ridiculous and it was clearly there was some skullduggerous fascist policeman he was stringing him along i can't remember the details of it but but i mean it was absolutely patently obvious to any reader that this agent in his report which he still hadn't seemed to realize as he was writing it had been completely taken along for the ride by a fascist in in northern italy and you just think how on earth did this guy ever become an SOE agent? And you see this time and time again, that there's the, the, the sort of personal rivalries, political agendas, all sorts of stuff, just sort of rank incompetence, you know, basic schoolboy errors repeatedly made, which sort of undermine the whole thing. Uh, and then, then in the shadows, you've got shadowy people like sort of, you know, what's his name, um, Colonel Grusar, you know, one of the Z Men, and and you've got, you know, the, these Machiavels like Claude Dancy, and and it's just, it's amazing, really. I mean, I, I, I just when I finished your book, I just was just dumbfounded by, I suppose that was the, that was the thing that kind of stuck with me, kind of more than anything else, in a way, was just how ghastly the whole thing was, really. Well, it was a mix, as you say, it was a mixture of courage and incompetence. And maybe all war is, is liable to have both those elements in it. F section was a particularly unpleasant example of it, perhaps. Um, I mean, there was the, the F section agent who was a cinema manager in, in civilian life. He spoke good French. So he was dropped in as a radio operator. And the first time he managed to find a contact to walk in, he walked into a bar. I think in Toulouse, and walked up to his very professional section leader and said, watch your cock at the top of his voice. It <laughs> 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 was the last time, I think it was Ben Carbon agreed to meet him. And he was sh shortly afterwards arrested. And he told the Gestapo officer who arrested him that it was the first time he'd felt safe since he arrived. <laughs> Which demands the question, how is how is recruiting done if it's turning out people like this? And if the if the, the recruiting's turning up people like this, why isn't the training ironing it out of them? One of the problems was that we didn't actually have many people who spoke good French. Yeah. Um these people were, were they were volunteers. They in the case of Francis Suttle, who was prosper. He thought he was joining the commandos in view of the training he was given initially. They weren't told what they were going to do until very late on. And Satchel spoke French, but many of them didn't, like our friend who said, watch your cock. Um, and they were, they, were, they, they were all that was available. And 
Um, some of them were really, really efficient, and they were all very brave. But most of them were just, they'd bitten off more than they could chew, and they were up against a very professional police force, both French and German. And this is the reason for, um, part of the reason anyway, for the fact that so many were arrested and killed. I mean, I suppose I think that the other thing that I was really left with um, reading your book was, you know, it's just appalling that people like Francis Suttle and Gilbert Norman, you know, pe- people who were spectacularly brave and courageous, were then kind of rubbished after the war officially for kind of having blown up the Prosper Circuit and it was all their fault and because they were useless and not much good and incompetent and all the rest of it. You know, and that wasn't really the case at all. I mean, absolutely wasn't the case. I mean, in the case of Francis Suttle, he was spectacularly brave. Uh, and and how wrong it felt that that his reputation and name, not only did he sacrifice himself, he, he sacrificed his name and his reputation as well. And I just think, think that's just unforgivable, really. Absolutely. And, and the case of Norman is, is also very sad because he was already exhausted. He was on the point of being returned to England. He was then arrested and he held out for two or three days and was still trying to warn London that he had been arrested and he was under enemy control. And he sent the necessary code to London, whereupon Dancy promptly replied saying, why have you sent us, why have you omitted your second check, which was this I mean, this, this is a very serious error and must not be allowed to happen again. Well, at that point, Gilbert Norman gave in and started cooperating with the Gestapo because he became convinced that there was indeed a German agent in, in Baker Street, which is what they were telling him. And uh, so, in, in effect, he was shafted by the, by the incompetence of his commanding officer. I mean, it's just, it's just absolutely appalling, isn't it? It's a sad tale, really. I mean, I have to say, um, but but just just yeah, really, really is fascinating. Yeah, I'm and well, you know what a big fan I am of of the book. I, I just thought it was revelatory. I must say. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, thank you so much for joining us, Patrick. For those of you who want to uh, to know more, War in the Shadows by Patrick Marnham is is well, it's out now, isn't it? And it's uh, if you to be honest, I've been waking up having paranoid dreams reading this book um <laughs> uh, patrick you've disturbed my sleep i woke up i woke up from a nightmare four or five nights ago where i was on a bus speaking bad french being stared at by all sorts of french people <laughs> and the rendezvous i was on my way to had been shelled shelled by a royal navy battleship and i was late and i should have been there when it was being shelled because i'd been betrayed <laughs> and that, a great that, dream that's your bloody book. So <laughs> I think I'll put that story into my next one. <laughs> so thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Well, that was terrific. We'll see you all soon. Cheerio. Cheerio. Cheerio.